Welcome to First Fuel, a podcast bringing you perspectives on the role of energy efficiency, energy management, demand response, and the energy transition taking place in Australia and around the world. I'm Luke Menzel, CEO of the Energy Efficiency Council, and this week I'm joined by two guests, both from the team at the National Australian Built Environment Rating System. We have Carlos Flores, Director of Neighbours, and Esther Bailey, Head of Market Development. Welcome both, and how are you travelling? I'm doing really great, Luke. It's really exciting to, to be here. I'm great. Thanks for having us, Luke. Always a pleasure. Now, we uh, touch on Neighbours pretty regularly on the podcast, but we've never done a deep dive, and the release of your FY20 annual report is a great excuse to do just that. But, Carlos, before we get into the year that was, I'm aware we have a bunch of international listeners and probably one or two Aussie ones that aren't across Neighbours in detail. I thought I might start by asking you to back up a bit and briefly explain what Neighbours is and the role it plays here in Australia. Um, we love talking about Neighbours, so very happy to. Um so Neighbours at its core is a certification scheme for buildings in sustainability. And we work mostly with the building sector. But what we mean by that, if you think about it, is um, a lot of the se- sectors of the economy actually work around buildings. So it's not just offices. It's not just shopping centers. We're talking about hotels. The technology sector revolves around data centers. We work with data centers. The healthcare system works around hospitals. We work with hospitals. So in essence, we work with a significant portion of sectors of the economy. Um, and we focus on areas like energy efficiency is probably the, the certification that people know the most, neighbors energy. Mm-hmm. But we also work on water, indoor environment quality, waste, uh, and carbon neutral buildings as well. So several aspects of sustainability. And maybe if, if people are new to Neighbours and they don't know much about what it is, maybe the, the single most defining characteristics of, of, of the rating scheme is that we use data. We use 12 months of data mm-hmm. in energy. It means 12 months of energy bills. And what that means in practice is that the only way to get better in Neighbours is using less energy, using less water. And I think we're going to dive very deep into what that's meant for Australia probably later in this podcast. But mm. that is, has been a really important characteristic that Neighbours has had for over 20 years by this point. Um, and I think is is something that has really shaped the way we see sustainability in Australia and the kind of things that we have done in the past and the kind of things that we think are possible in the next 10 years. I completely agree. And it's that focus on actual performance and the, the robustness of uh, uh, the, the Neighbours approach and the respect with which it's held in the market, which has been really transformative. Esther, um, you joined Neighbours, I think, a little bit over a, a year ago. That's right. Um, after almost a, a decade um, with City of Sydney. What motivated you or inspired you to, to join Carlos's team? Long-term um, fan of the program. And, you know, to Carlos's point, it's just seen that transformative impact that it's had on the market. Um, mm. We... You know, we talk a lot about the need um, to be able to measure things, to be able to manage them, and that sits Mm -hmm. at the absolute core. So if I thought about where I wanted to be, where I thought I could have the most impact, then driving that visibility um, across all of the sectors that Carlos described is a foundation stone to taking the deep and meaningful action that we need. So that was where I felt I could add the most value, and it's been um, certainly a very um, gratifying process and, and and a really great choice for me because... It's as good on the inside as it looks on the outside at Neighbours. <laughs> it's fantastic to hear. And I also have a perspective on, on how you guys work. Um, I'm, I'm honoured to uh, to sit on the National Steering Committee on behalf of the Energy Efficiency Council and, and pleased to make a, a small contribution um, to some of the strategic thinking that, that guides Neighbours' work. But I guess we're here to talk about the, the annual 
report. Um, it has been a, a pretty big year and, and obviously some, some fairly massive uh, shifts driven by the pandemic over over the last few months or so. But I, I thought I'd ask before we kind of dive into the, the formal report for you, both of your gut feels about the last year um, and maybe to, to give me a word that kind of in, encapsulates the last year from your perspective. Esther, I might start with you. Uh, this is a great question. I, I just loved reflecting on this. And I, I think at the, at the core of it, I'm just really proud. Hmm. You know, it's been, you know, there's lots of very negative kind of language around it. And obviously it's been extraordinarily difficult. But if there's one thing that we should have been skilling up for in this sector, it's that we know that those shocks and stresses will come. Mm. And Mm. here's our first test of going into battle to see how we can um, pivot and and adapt. And I think um, as a a sustainability sector um, and as um, professionals in this space, then that's... Mm. That's what we've seen is people just really step up um, and and an incredible resilience in the community to say, okay, look, there's this incredible change that's happening in the way that I'm operating my buildings and the things that are expected. And it's a and it's a big sideways knock, but actually all the thinking that we've done was the right thinking. All the positioning that we've done over this long haul is the right is the right place to be, and all these incredible networks that we that we have across our industry and with industry partners and 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 um, will all stand us in really good stead for that. So I'm incredibly proud of what the maturity of this sector has done to be able to protect it and set it up for bouncing back and coming out of this really strongly. You're right, actually. It, it, we have really stress-tested, I guess, neighbours, but also the, the sector in a sense and um, the, the networks that have been created and the, I guess the trust between industry and, yeah. and, and, a, and, a, and a system like like neighbours and government, I suppose, more broadly has um, really stood us in good stead and uh, allowed you guys to sort of do some yeah. really rapid consultation in a really in a format that um, was uh, able to um, get to some answers very, very quickly and, and maintain confidence in the market in a way that had that trust not existed or that system not been in, in place um, would have been really, really challenging in the in the current environment. Exactly. They talk a lot about you know, in really healthy systems about adaptive capacity. Like, mm. And I think we've really just demonstrated that so so strongly um, and, and the amount of planning and pivoting and that, and that consistent um, sort of maintenance of the long-term view. Like, We haven't wavered from where the place that we need to get to, mm. but we've just changed some of the mechanisms and the priorities and the things that are in front of us. But I think... I think we've still very much got our eyes on the prize. Absolutely, because yeah. this has been a really difficult year for a lot of people. For pretty much everyone you you know it around the world has a, have had a really difficult year in 2020. Uh, but I also, if I think about it, a word, I, I I really don't want to go into words that are very negative, and I want to look at the silver linings of what's happening, what the opportunities that are not there that weren't there maybe seven or eight months ago, and I. I wonder if that's because uh, we work, all three of us actually work in climate change and a common trait of people working in our profession is that you have to be really optimistic because um, we have, we're working on saving the planet. And, and if you're not optimistic, you can really feel like a lot, you know, doom and gloom everywhere. And the reality is that if you want to endure in, 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 this, um, in this task of, you know, saving the planet within the next 20 to 30 years, we have to be uh, able to overcome really difficult challenges like the one we're going through right now. Um, and, and I feel like Esther was saying, I think that what, there's a couple of things that, uh, that this year have taught me. And one of them is that 
were incredibly flexible as people. I mean, the, the amount of change that we were able to drive ourselves as a society in Australia, but also around the world within a matter of weeks or months at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, I've never seen change at that scale in my life. I wasn't, I didn't know that scale change at that pace could happen so quickly. Uh, and that is a really important lesson for those of us who work in climate change, because uh, we always talk about we need to change everything that we do over the next 30 years. But the actual change that we need to drive is much more gradual than what happened in April this year. We just need to do it over 30 years. But if we can do that in two months, it gives me a lot of uh, confidence that if we want to, we can absolutely tackle the sustainability challenges we have ahead. We definitely are able to exercise the flexibility uh, and adaptability that we need to be able to get to where we need to be in, you know, by the middle of this century. So is that, would that be your word then, Carlos, flexibility, or have you got another one for us? I was going to say it's been a year of discovery for me. Mm. I mean, I've discovered that we are much more flexible than maybe uh, sometimes we think that we are. Mm. Uh, but also our industry, and Esther mentioned this as well, I think the sustainability sector a few years ago was something that a lot of us, a lot of people probably saw as something that was a, an optional and nice to have for a lot of organizations, something that you could easily drop um, if things got a little bit tight. And what we're seeing this year is that things are much more than tight. Things are very difficult for a lot of companies. And in spite of that, we see a lot of our users, if not most of them, and almost all of them, still trying to do as much sustainability work as they can in spite of the circumstances. And I think that's a, that's a really important lesson as well. I think we've demonstrated that sustainability went from being something small into, you know, it's graduated as a heavyweight of, of what businesses do. And we've seen a sector that can take a few punches this year and, and still be standing. And I think that is extremely important because um, over the next 30 years, we're going to see other challenges that are probably going to be just as big as this one. We are very likely to see economic crisis coming up. We're going to see political crisis. We're going to see a lot of things that we can't prev- uh, you know, uh, conceive at this point in time. And climate change is still going to be there. We're going to have to overcome all those challenges uh, to be able to tackle this. So uh, in spite of how difficult this situation has been, I feel the change that we've seen and, and how resilient this sector has been in these circumstances is something that is, uh, that is important to acknowledge. The sector is strong. Um, and yes, a lot of companies are limping in 2020, but they're still here and they're still doing incredible work. And I think it's setting us for a really strong bounce back in 2021, which is, uh, you know, in a way exciting and something that we need to gear up and prepare for because uh, as soon as we're in a position to bounce back, we need to go all in. Well, Carlos, you've given me a, a, a fantastic segue because um, a, a lot of the moves that you made over the last 12 months or so have really been about setting neighbours up for the next decade so that you can r- continue to raise that uh, that impact uh, of the program over time. And a lot of that, were, a lot of those emerged from the future of neighbours energy project. Can you take me through where that project was coming from and some of the changes and announcements that have emerged from it and that are captured in that annual report? Absolutely. I think the so the future of Neighbours Energy is one of the most interesting and challenging projects we've done in in, in recent years. And uh, so I talked about Neighbours before uh, and the fact that we used 12 months of uh, energy data. Um, and one thing I didn't mention is just how much change we've seen in some of the sectors that we work with before. And it's probably good context for this project. So in the office sector, in the last 10 years, we basically work with almost every single building 
in the last decade. And not just that, but a lot of them, we work with them annually. So we see them, are they improving year on year? We actually see that we have data and not only we have data, but we've seen them improving at an incredible rate. It's about uh, it's about 30% reduction of energy consumption in 2020 compared to 10 years before. Uh, and that is the single fastest reduction of energy consumption of any sector in Australia, which is already a, a, a massive achievement, but also is arguably possibly the fastest in the world for a building sector. So that is um, so. There's been a lot of really special things happening in offices. That process is also starting to happen in shopping centres for the past few years. Mm. So um, uh, we've seen a lot of a lot of change. Neighbours' energy ratings have been really at the core of that change. It's been a really important uh, catalyzer in allowing buildings to set those targets and improve and promote that. Um, so we've seen a lot of change and that's great. Um, but we're getting to a point where we're seeing some really important trends in the market that we had not originally captured in Neighbors when we created this 20 years ago. And um, I'm not going to talk about all of them because there's quite a few, but maybe the most important and that everyone is really aware of is the fact that the grid is decarbonizing, the electricity grid in Australia in particular, for being very, very heavy on coal to be increasingly more reliant on renewables. Um, and we've already seen quite a bit of change in the last 20 years, you know, relatively slow. And But but we are at a point where about 20% of the electricity consumption in Australia comes from renewables. Now, what does this matter for neighbours? It, it matters because people who run buildings often use electricity and gas. So um, you can heat up a space using gas, using a gas boiler, or you can heat up a space using heat pumps, using electricity. So the question is about the, if the electricity grid is decarbonizing, uh, a lot of people are very interested in installing heat pumps because all electric technologies are becoming increasingly decarbonized every year because the grid is decarbonizing. So mm. that is a really important trend. It's happening around the world. Uh, and the decarbonization of heating is something that almost every country is working on right now. It's a trend that is here to stay. Um, now, we didn't anticipate this 20 years ago, 22 years ago in 1998 when we created Davis. Um, and if we didn't do anything to, to, to do something about that trend, um, the result was going to be that we would be you know, forever encouraging buildings to have gas on site and basically penalize heat pumps. So what we're trying to do at the moment with the Future of Neighbors Energy Project is capturing the fact that all electric technologies increasingly are going to be better and better for the environment over time. So in, in, at a high level, obviously, there's a lot of detail on this, and, and we have a lot of information on our website. But we're doing uh, a, a one significant change in July 2021, uh, which is that we are updating neighbors to the latest emission factors in Australia. And the reason why we want to do that is because we're going to capture again, going back into how, um, what is the environmental impact of all electric technologies today in 2021. So we're no longer going to have any bias for or against gas or electricity. Um, and we also put in place a process where every five years, we're going to continue to update those emission factors to reflect the increasing benefit of all electric technologies over time. So we're fixing a problem that was becoming bigger and bigger on July next year, but also we have a process by which we're going to address this problem over the next two decades because uh, this uh, the decarbonization of the grid is only going in one direction and it's becoming faster and faster. So that is probably the, the, the number one biggest issue we're trying to tackle as part of that project. But if you want a second one, which I think is, is a really interesting one for discussion, is that uh, we had a lot of building owners about 
a year ago, coming to neighbors and asking us to develop a net zero certification for buildings as part of as part of our ratings. Um, and we've done a lot of consultation. We've been doing a lot of discussions with many people in industry. Uh, and what everyone agrees is that we should have this, that this is, is having a recognition for net zero buildings and where we want to bring the sector is really important. Um, but a lot of people have different ideas of what, of what is it that we should be trying to encourage in the long term. Some think, people think that we should be creating a standard to recognize very, very energy efficient buildings that run 100% of renewables with no gas on site. And that view is about, you know, what's the end point? Where do we want buildings to be uh, to, to be a long-term contributor to climate change and recognizing that and pushing more people into that group? Um, there's a second view about people who think that uh, we should be more inclusive in allowing for a transition. You know, a lot of existing buildings, and I think uh, you discussed this with Francesca Maskovic in your podcast a, a few episodes ago, but um, decarbonizing existing buildings is actually much more difficult than doing it in new buildings because there's some there's some practicality, space. Uh, heat pumps require quite a bit of space. You don't always have that space if the building's built. So there's, there's, a, there's a number of things that we're still trying to work out. How do we decarbonize heating in buildings that already have systems in place? Um, and some people have advocated that we need a transition to allow more of them uh, to to perhaps buy offsets for some other gas and, and, and go into a trajectory to zero emissions maybe in five years to 10 years. So there's a few arguments we're in the middle of that discussion, but I think what's really interesting about this is just the level of interest among people in all sectors of the built environment from owners to energy service providers to facility management companies on. We are in a unique position to have an incredible number of net zero buildings in Australia because we benchmark and we certify our consumption on an annual basis and we set targets. And there are very few people that have countries that have that kind of momentum. Um, and if anyone's listening to this and they have views about where they think we should go with this project, we really want to hear them because we are at a point where we are collecting information. We've done consultation before. We're likely to have another one coming in a couple of months. And we want your views about where you think we should go and where you think the building built environment in Australia should and could be in a few years. It's really interesting the the point you make around sort of a, a broad agreement about where we're going, um, and then there's potentially diverging views about the exact pathway for how to get there. But it it it, it suggests to me, Esther, and underlines to me the, the degree to which the, the built environment sector is, is the rubber is hitting the road. We're making these decisions over over the next few few years in many cases, whether you're talking about new build or ex- existing build, and so these aren't sort of airy fairy esoteric questions that we can deal with in the 2030s or something. These are these are things that um, uh, property groups and, and building owners are, are grappling with in, in real time, um, often often sort of driven by some fairly um, ambitious commitments around hitting net zero targets by by X date. Um, is, that, is that kind of your feel for what's driving the conversation and the, and the, um, uh, the very uh, active engagement from stakeholders in, in, in how Neighbours goes with that? Yeah, 100%. I mean, we are absolutely embedded in our community and always in a kind of a listening relationship with them. And they, they expect you know big things from us mm. like they're always at the top of their game there's an incredible willingness to um to get into the the intellectual nitty-gritty that you need to really tease some of these 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 issues apart mm. and um it's 
it's it's a challenge from a consultation point of view, but it's also a great thrill to be part of that um, really leading thinking. And and the detail does matter hmm. because you know these decisions get made and they get laddered up to major um, corporate and investment decisions and frameworks. And you need to know what you mean in the in the details and the definitions. So um, it's it's rigorous work and it's robust work, but it's also um, it's also really good fun once you get it right and get it done. So you have to take your time with it, but um, but we know that there's an appetite in the market to really get there and to do it well. Um, it is, of course, worth mentioning as well that um, we already partner with the Climate Active um, badge as well. So we are already providing a carbon neutral pathway through for many of our customers, and that's seen incredible growth in take up. I think we've doubled our numbers this year and looking forward to some really big growth in that as well. And, and whilst we are very much always about efficient buildings on renewable running on renewable energy offsets uh, do have a part to play in restoring and renewing our, our world and our ecosystem and in dealing with some of those more intangible offsets whilst we go through that process of electrification and really getting the the the, the inside of the building right we need to deal with some of the, the cards that we've been dealt um, and and an offset strategy can be a really important part of that as well and going back to your comments around uh, the interactions of neighbors with the grid Carlos that that was an example of a, a, a consultation process which was was quite intensive you were deeply engaged with a whole bunch of different different stakeholders but I think you, you were able to land it in a place where everybody, everybody was very very comfortable I think the main point of contention at the end of that was how often you would you would ultimately review some of the, the, the carbon intensity of those different those different fuel sources um, but uh, where you landed in a place where everyone was relatively comfortable with uh, where neighbors set that review period absolutely I th- in this point in particular, there were people suggesting, for example, that maybe we should update these emission factors every year, uh, which means that we will be always keeping track with exactly what's happening with the electricity grid to, you know, the the exact detail uh, on an annual basis. Uh, But there were also other people, uh, you know, putting the very valid point that maybe it's actually about setting longer term targets for buildings. So if we did a lot of changes to our ratings every year, it would actually make it really hard to know whether you are still five stars next year or in two years from now. Um, And so we, we did a lot of consultation to find a balance on how often do you need to update this so we solve the problem that we are continuing to encourage and recognize the, the environmental benefits of all electric technologies, but also without losing perhaps the single most important thing about neighbors, which is that you can set targets for next year in two years and five years from now with confidence. And I think we landed in a really good compromise position, you know, somewhere between one year, which is what some people wanted, uh, and 10 or 20 years, which was what, what other people wanted. And in the end, after talking quite a bit, we realized that five years was a really good compromise that, you know, the great majority of people thought it was a, a, a a really good place to land. Mm. And uh, I suppose the other big strategic play that has, has continued to gather momentum over the last year, Esther, is the expansion into into new sectors, um, sort of taking some of the lessons and, and learnings and, and success um, in the in the sectors in which the Neighbours currently offer, operates and trying to leverage that to, to drive change in other parts of the economy. Um, can you tell us a bit about Neighbours Accelerate? Uh, because I, I know that uh, this has been a big year in terms of just pinning down what those expansion sectors would be and maybe unpack why you landed where you did. Yeah, for sure. So our five-year annual plan um, 
we're driven by our steering committee to reach out to every sector. Uh, we're confident that we can achieve the kind of savings we've seen already in these other new sectors because the technical potential is so readily available to us. So it was really just a question of working out what's the right order to go. Um, and so when we approached that task, uh, we, we put it through a lens with three really key criteria. The first one, of course, is impact. You know, that's what we're about. That's what we're here for. Uh, where can we have the most impact? The second um, was about um, what's the community readiness and the engagement needs? So do we know who to work with and what their needs are and how accessible are they to us? And then the third piece, obviously, being just looking at that technical complexity because we want to build the system iteratively so that we keep that confidence and quality that our customers have come to expect. So when we put all of that into the melting pot, uh, what popped out very clearly for us um, and the ones that we've made a start on in this year was the residential aged care and retirement living sectors. Um, they are a really exciting place to be starting. We already um, have ratings for hospitals, so there's some analogies there. Mm. We already do work in hotels, so that speaks to some of the accommodation. And some of the ownership is quite similar to other asset classes that we had. So we had some really good customers um, who already were familiar with neighbours, already understood the benefits of that, um, but who were really interested in extending that into a new um new sector of their of their portfolio but there's also of course a whole raft of new customers there that we haven't dealt with at all so um you know many of the um uh, kind of religious faith-based groups that run um large large premises in that sector and um and it's been just overwhelming the enthusiasm that they've come to with the accelerate program so um the, the next sectors coming down all quite different characters. So um, the next one we'll be looking at is distribution, warehouses and cold stores. So very different in character, very different in approach and the way in which we need to engage with um, owners and occupiers in that space. But huge, vast by square meterage. So a really big cuck kick up in terms of the amount of coverage that we can provide. So um we're a little bit earlier on in that engagement, but I think, um, and traditionally some, some challenges, you know, there's this kind of narrative about, you know, the big box sitting on the concrete paver. Um, but, but when we start to think more expansively about, um, what's our capacity for online on-site solar how are we going to you know what 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 resources could they capture and reuse? That's a very different lens on a core efficiency, um, kind of uh, potential for that box um, and also thinking about supply chain so though a lot of the majors in um, the distribution space are now thinking about net zero supply chain so again the same conversation but plays out in a very different way when you're speaking to a different market mm. and then the third one um, that's coming up next on the list is schools mm. so um back into that community space, back into how do we make those safe places um, for our children on this instance. Uh, and um, but, but incredible scale of opportunity because there are just so, so many of them. So each one of those sectors will have a different challenge. Each one of them needs us to really get into it and understand the needs and drivers and make sure that the tool responds very carefully and thoughtfully to their needs, but using that very consistent data framework that we've become so famous for. So Esther, uh, you're head of market development, so I'm extrapolating. I don't really know what you do, <laughs> but, I, but 
I'm sure I, I understand that it's uh, all about spearheading that that expansion in a sense and developing those markets. Yeah, I mean, I, I would frame it more around the engagement piece. So it's kind of it's laddering off the same themes we've been exploring. Like we're not a commercial entity. We don't need to sell stuff for the sake yep. of selling stuff. We are providing a service because we know and we are confident that it will help us to save taxpayers yep. money yep. or yep. increase quality of life. So that's a really great place to be developing markets from. So I, I really, yes, yes, um, the team is looking for me to make sure that these expansion plans land in the marketplace. Yep. But for me, that's really about that that listening exercise, understanding the needs, understanding how um, that tool would be used. Is that sector driven by the need to demonstrate to investors or to make sure that their grandma mm. feels comfortable mm. that you've made that to so very different approaches, mm. but they're equally as valid. And so understanding and listening to the needs of the different um, kind of uh, the, the people that will drive that decision making and take the benefit of those is really where I think um, I can keep, be of the most service to make sure that um, Neighbours is a community benefit mm. and that it's directing capital um, into the kinds of uh, built form that we want to see over the years ahead. Yeah, and, and I guess that gets to my question, which is that uh, a part of this expansion is also an expansion in the stakeholders that you need to bring along yeah. for a mm. journey. I mean, we've got a, a, a core group um, of very engaged stakeholders that have been on a 20-year journey with neighbours mm. um, and not sometimes had some ups and downs along the way, but there's a, there's a, there's a really, you know, they know in their bones what Neighbours is, is about and where you guys are coming from. Um, this this um, ambitious agenda, which I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about, requires um, rapidly building rela- relationships um, and, uh, and getting that understanding. And also just from a, from a, a resourcing perspective, managing all, the, all of those relationships with that, that, that a much more diverse stakeholder group. And I think about the steering committee and, um, you know, there's, there, there, there's diversity in terms of the organisations that sit around that steering committee table, but um, often not taking in some of the some of the sectors um, that that you're proposing to expand expand to, notwithstanding that there is a little bit of crossover here and there. So, how, given that engagement is your job, how, how are you thinking about that, and how the the, the task of neighbours as a um, an engagement body is going to evolve over the next few years? You know, we, we we stand on this great body of data, so our capacity to communicate those you know hard benefits is very well established. Mm. But I think that I think the thing that we have done less which kind of speaks to my point about this community engagement is speaks through a more emotional lens. You know, Mm. we speak to, you know, sustainability professionals who can read the spreadsheet and understand the bell curve and that kind of thing. And, and And this connecting with people in place is probably something that's a little bit newer for us. Um, I think we've got really great foundation stones for that, but we'll have to look at the way in which we communicate. So, um, energy efficiency and getting those foundations really right but people want you know sustainable healthy thriving you know places to be and bringing in some of that language in the way that we engage on a more personal level i think will be the opportunity and the challenge immediately ahead of us there's no there's no one story is there it's like it's absolutely it's finding the story that resonates you listen you respond Mm. yeah the, the one thing that I would add to that as well is that the, when we move into a new sector, a lot of people that we think of as part of that sector mm. are often new. 
but there are some really important stakeholders that are actually also participants from existing sectors who already have long-term relationships. And maybe the best example of that is investors. Um, if you look at the the list of um, you know ASX 100 companies, you realize that they pretty much cover like mm. 50 different sectors. So there's there's like five or six property companies, but there's also the main supermarkets, and there's also some private hospitals and industrial manufacturers, and all of them are often players that only play in those markets. But the investors that put money in their companies actually put money in 50 or 60 of those funds at once. And one area that we, Esther and I are doing a lot of work in 2020 and beyond is how do we create a closer relationship with investors? So when we move into a new sector, we're not really starting from scratch because we come in with a lot of the weight of the owners mm -hmm. of a lot of those companies, which is often investment funds and particularly super funds in Australia, which uh, a lot of people would be surprised to know that they own 40% of all the stocks in all the 2000 companies in the Australian stock exchange. 40 percent of that is just super funds and there's not that many of them so there is a significant potential to really uh, be able to tap into the investor market and partner with them in a way that as we move into these new sectors we can use that investment power to get those companies to become more energy efficient more water efficient to send net zero targets so we're not starting necessarily from the same base we were in offices in 1998 or in shopping centers when we started in 2008 if we can channel that power as we move into new sectors, we could potentially have, you know, a lot more incentives for a lot of those companies to jump on board and move in a much faster trajectory, which really we have to, you know, in, in climate change, we cannot wait for a sector that we're expanding today to get significant savings 20 years later. Mm. We need to get those savings within the next two or three years and trying to channel that investment power, I think is a, is a holy grail for a lot of people in sustainability at the moment. And what's so exciting about that is that they're so keen <laughs> to participate in that. Mm. You know, we hear from our stakeholders in the financial services sector that money is looking for a home. It's looking mm. for mm. sustainable mm. investments. Um, and whilst there are some indicators um, um, that enable people to deploy their capital. There are not as many, I think, as as the as the market needs. So uh, there's absolutely an opportunity for neighbours to play a really strong role in demonstrating credibly um, performance that enables um, investors to to direct their capital. And as we start to cover these new investment classes, then of course the capacity to invest in in those classes using the neighbours rater as an indicator exponentially grows as well. And that's certainly a place that we're putting a lot of focus at the moment. As well. If you like First Fuel, you'll love the Energy Efficiency Council's National Energy Efficiency Conference, delivered virtually from the 24th to the 26th of November 2020. This year's conference features an unprecedented lineup of global experts like former European Commissioner for Climate Action, Connie Hedegaard, and the International Energy Agency's Dr. Brian Motherway, as well as local leaders like Angus Taylor, Mark Butler, Lily D'Ambrosio, Zali Stegel, and many more. Full conference and one-day tickets are available, along with Early Bird and EEC member discounts. To find out more, visit eec.org.au forward slash conference. Well, uh, 
quite a sophisticated offering, which kind of speaks to that that journey that we hope some of those new sectors will go on is the Sustainable Portfolios Index. Um, and you've released the second SPI in 2020. And what struck me sort of looking through the annual report was the year-on-year increase. I think you uh, it was 48, 48% year-on-year in terms of the coverage um, of the of the SPI. So Esther, what, what do you put that growth down to and and what role do you see that that index playing in the market oh it's a really interesting product and it's still reasonably young Mm. so we're still very much learning and working with the particularly with the finance sector to understand the role that it can play certainly the the thinking that underpins it is you know we we operate at an asset level but a building is rated in this place and in this space um and it's based on evidence and it's based on historical data. So it's super solid and mm. super robust. But of course, through that investment lens, which is, you know, telescoped out, you know, by um, a considerable margin, they are looking more at portfolio scale. So we needed a way to be able to send an indicator that speaks the more investor language um, than going, you know, only being able to report at an asset by asset level. So that was the, the sort of original thinking is we start to be able to cl- cluster those those ratings up into the portfolios. And then that has the co-benefit of starting to be able to talk about what's that portfolio achieving, but also what's the coverage look like. So if you um, recall, you know, a few years ago in sustainability, there was a a little bit of a tendency to sort of cherry pick your best assets mm. and they were the ones that go in the brochure and that's great. And we just kind of sweep the other ones under the carpet. But of course, we need all of the assets to come up and we know that they have the potential to do that. So that, so in this year we launched a ranking in the, in the SPI as well, that there's, that marks your coverage by your, by your average rating. And, um, Actually, there was a, a really positive response to making that move. We thought it, we, we thought there might be a little bit more challenge from the marketplace, but people understood that. And so that was, that was really gratifying to see. Um, in terms of what role do we think that it plays? So for me, um, I think it's the essential sort of third leg of the stool, if you will, um, for really evidencing achievement. You know, we've had ESG for many years. It sets out um, your environmental social governance. What are the processes you have for managing your impact? What, what's the, what's the governance layers? Um, um, how does the accountability throw th- flow through the organization? And of course, in the last couple of years, we've seen this tremendous emergence, particularly in the, the top of that market for net zero and carbon neutral commitments. Many of them are out into the future. Um, you know, they started off 2050, are, are very fabulous and competitive sector, but I've pulled them back, some of them kicking in um, really uh, either immediately or, or in the next decade. But but they're still essentially a promise for tomorrow. Mm. And so bringing neighbours in to say, well, great, you've got great governance and great, you've got a promise. What are you doing? How are you moving forward? How are you moving along that trajectory? So this is where the rubber hits the road. And I think that's the real power that we bring into the conversation is actually holding those other um those other parts to account and, and making a t- making a full story. So we in this iteration collaborated with the Climate Works Net Zero Momentum Tracker. Um there's lots of different net zero claims. We haven't finished our own internal work. So we've referenced that as a very credible third party who are just documenting the different nature of the claims and the boundaries. But that was a really powerful addition. So um, 
to your original question about about where the growth, I think um, I think that value is just becoming clearer. Mm. You know, the first time out the gate was kind of, well, this is an interesting thing. Where will it land? Once people saw that and could connect with it, then they really understood that we were our, our intention is to help our customers look good to their customers. You know, and that and that's what this does. So. Um, you know, the, the operations managers and the sustainability managers and the property portfolios, they know the value of this. They know and they want that permission to run harder. If we can present their tremendous work to the people who can give them more money to run harder, then that gives them more permission to have more ambition. And so thinking about how we help them to mm. do well um, is very much what drove it. And I think that's been appreciated by customers. And that's why the people who maybe stood off it a little bit in year one are like, yeah, okay, we get this. This helps us. This adds value we're in. You know, what's one thing I find really interesting about the Sustainable Portfolios Index is that um, if, you, if you look at the Australian property companies, they do a lot of work on reporting to Grace, to Dow Jones in, in the US, to the Carbon Disclosure Project. There's, there's a lot of instances of reporting to investors, um, but very little of that data is actually public. So mm. if you want access to that detailed reports, you actually have to pay often at a price point that is only available to big investors. So it's, it's actually not data that can be used for a lot of other purposes. It's completely locked out and invisible to most people. So one of the things that we thought we could do with these sustainable portfolios in this, based on an experience with ratings, is that if you put make this data available, public for everyone, eventually people will come up with a lot of ways to use it that we haven't even thought about just yet. And we're starting mm. to see that process. This is quite a new uh, process. We've only done it for two years now. Um, and we started to see that process developing in, in, in that direction. But this is actually the single place where you can see the performance of the you know 40 largest funds that you can invest in, in Australia. And all the data, not just aggregated, but you can see every building in their portfolio and how well they're doing. Not just the ones that are doing great, but also the ones that in their funds that are not doing so great. And that level of transparency is incredible. I, I don't think there's a single indicator or ranking anywhere in the world where you can see that many assets and that many companies disclosing so transparently right next to their competitors in the same market. And I think speaks not just about our work at Neighbors, but it says a lot about Australia. Uh, you know, that that balance between we have companies competing in the same market, but also they help each other and competing in a really healthy way, you know, competing to be more transparent, competing to be using less energy and less carbon emissions, but also helping each other and sharing the things that they learn so others can do it as well. I think this is a really great example of that. And we're really looking forward to see you know, other ways in which banks and investors and, and other places in the market are going to use this information, but just having it there available to me, it's already a, a really big win. And and who knows what we're going to see in the next couple of years. Mm. The other thing it speaks to me is the incredible depth of the data that you guys have available and the, the opportunities to use that in creative ways to drive change over and above what is happening at, a, at, a, at, the, at the level of, a, of the core neighbours rating, um, packaging up stuff that was there and, and going on that journey with some of the portfolios you've been working with. Fantastic, because... The data's already there, 
right? <laughs> and, you, and it's just about doing that, that, that extra sort of 20% to, um, to create this new thing, which is driving a completely different type of change and informing a, different, a completely different group of stakeholders. And, and that's one thing that uh, you and I have talked about, Carlos, is um, how you could um, leverage that data in an appropriate way to do more targeted support of, of particular building owners, particularly sort of in the mid-tier. Um, um, there's all kinds of opportunities and, and richness in, the, in, the, in that data set and uh, and uh, yeah, it's a re- it's really exciting to think about how you know you guys as you've you, you you're getting more creative and, and ambitious and entre- entrepreneurial in a sense, um, um, looking to raise that um, that impact. Um, there's obviously opportunities in new sectors, but there are still lots of opportunities in the sectors that you've been operating in for the last twenty years. Yeah, I mean, I, I would absolutely support that, and we. Um, you know, we're, we believe in radical transparency. Our start point is that data should be available mm. for people to use and to learn and to be innovative. And, and, and so we try to place as much of it we can in the, in the public domain for those very positive intentions. Um, it's the point that you make is just so well made, Luke, because, um, you, you know, for policymakers to know what the problem is, mm. you know, you can put out a survey or you can do a point in time kind of in-depth piece of research, but ours is a live and living data set mm. that tells you how things are changing and they are changing faster than they ever have before. And so our capacity to say, here, we've identified an opportunity here, or here are some people who are moving really fast. What are they doing well? Mm. Here's some people who are not moving very fast. What do we know about them? And how can we take some of the lessons from this group and provide it to the other group is really how you elevate this. And I think that's been one of the really beautiful um, experiences of working with the Commercial Building Disclosure Program, for example, mm. which is, you know, inherently um, a, an imposition on business, a requirement to 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 um to do a rating that they may not have chosen to do but by knowing where they are then government is able to bring other opportunities to the table mm. so and think about other financial incentives and other positive ways to encourage that change so i think it's really important to um you know, to, to think of these things through that, that opportunity lens, um, we're seeing it very strongly, for example, in the waste sector for the moment at the moment. So we've got this, this waste tool that helps you to track all kinds of data through a, a management platform over time. And our policy colleagues are saying, we have very limited insight about what happens in the commercial and industrial sector. Yeah. Um, and how do we, we don't know whether you need a new organics processing plant in this location or whether we need better recovery, you know, in this sector. And, and we have the, the potential and the opportunity to help make really informed decisions about that that will help us to adapt yeah. in a changing world. And I think that's I think that's one of the things that very much drives us and and we are very committed to making those stories and that and that insight available to people so that we can really drive that change. Mm. Uh, so it's an excellent point, both Luke, Luke and, and Esther. I feel like there are so many good examples of um, why liberating data has been a, a key in the kind of success story in offices and shopping centers in Australia. But just to give you one of many, many examples, um, you know, back in maybe 10 or 15 years ago, a lot of property companies were looking at putting a neighbor's target for their portfolio, right? So GPT may have been maybe the first one that did this. And this is a long time ago, maybe 2007, 2008. Um, now, committing to a 4.5 target uh, as a portfolio when you're the first one and when there's no data or very little data in the market is incredibly difficult. 
And mm-hmm. and people raise who need to be part of that decision will raise all kinds of risks that are very valid if that data doesn't exist or you don't know how your competitors are doing. Is that really difficult? Is that impossible? very hard to do. These days, anyone who sets a five-star rating in any property company for, let's say, two years on the track, if anyone comes back and says, you know, is that even doable? They can just literally go and point out to a lot of public places, including the Sustainable Mm. Portfolios Index, Mm. but not only, and and show four or five companies that achieved that already, uh, Mm. some of them a couple of years ago, um, and, and also showing that maybe they are trailing six, seven, eight competitors in the same market. So, that is only possible because we have that data. That is not possible in the industrial sector in Australia today. So the same, the same thing is not possible. Uh, if you go to most countries around the world, even in the office market, that is not possible because that data doesn't exist. So those really practical aspects of setting targets as a company or at a building level, when you have no data and you don't know what's good and what's bad in the market, is so hard and it's so reliant on one individual having to do an incredible job of selling to be able to get it over the line. When you have data, you can point to others and say, hey, this is not as challenging a target as you think. And uh, and this is a mediocre target because all our competitors matter already. We need to go into the next level. That is uh, an incredible important part of that change. And one of the key reasons why we're putting so much time and effort and, and money on trying to bring neighbors to as many sectors as we can, as fast as we can. Because as, as long as we're not in those sectors, many of this transparency uh, on, on data or many policies that encourage that are just are just very difficult to do or just not possible. On something that uh, we at the Energy Efficiency Council are acutely aware of, Carlos, is that we don't have a neighbor's style system in, in other parts of the economy, whether you're talking about residential buildings, um, but also, as you say, uh, sort of industrial, um, uh, the resources sector and the like. Um, that benchmarking is, is incredibly valuable um, and the, uh, the ability for companies to know where they are relative to their peers and if they are setting targets that they're achievable because their peers have, have done something similar in the past. So um, I just wanted to make the, the point before we move on, and that is that uh, we're really proud that that data enables and drives you know, what we call the race to the top, hmm. and goodness knows we need more of those. But I think it's really important as well for any listeners who are maybe not as familiar with the system is that we, we do support people right from the very beginning of that journey. Hmm. So Neighbours is not a leadership programme. It, it's for everybody. It goes from from zero to six stars, and and the idea of of understanding your performance and setting a pathway is as applicable to people right at the beginning of that. And it's really important not to be afraid of poor performance because poor performance is opportunity, and 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 anyone can get there. And you don't have to get all the way there. The 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 point is to just know where you are, make a start and access the support that you need to do the best that you can. And, and neighbours will help to track you all the way through that all the through, way through that journey. Well, uh, improvement is improvement, right, Esther? Yeah. Um, and, yeah. you know, there's there's a, the, the journey from um, zero to two or three stars may be even more significant in terms of the, the sophistication and understanding of the issues involved than the journey from, you know, three to five or something like that. Um, and, and especially when it comes to, to building the, for say smaller building owners, building the relationships um, and the, the support, the, the, the trusted um, experts networks that allow them to go on that journey. Um, mm. And uh, that's certainly something which uh, Neighbours facilitates as well. Um, we can't close without talking about 
the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> it's to some degree, unfortunately. I suppose. Mm-hmm. I suppose it is the topic of the year, and it's one that comes up in in your annual report, um, Carlos. So you know, the Energy Efficiency Council, like a whole bunch of other stakeholders, were engaged with some some fairly uh, fairly rapid consultation that took place back in uh, March, April this year. Sort of as uh, we were all trying to get our head around what the implications of changed building use patterns would be for neighbours and the potential for that to impact on ratings. Um, uh, you ultimately landed on a relatively minimalist approach in terms of interventions to address that. Do you want to just talk through talk through that that uh, that journey that you went went on, and, and maybe give us a bit of an update on, on what you're seeing out in the market? Absolutely. I think well, this has been a, a year of reflection for a lot of people. So I've been thinking a lot in the last few weeks on what is it that I've learned um, out of this year. And, and I think one thing I've learned is that when it comes to really big change that you don't expect, um, often a lot of us make two mistakes. One of them is that we either are very slow to react and we sort of like we, we become very re- you know reactive in a position where suddenly we're really surprised. Uh, and that leads us to the second way that we often uh, make mistakes in this circumstance, which is overreacting because we it took us too long. And then we basically just act with a knee-jerk reaction. And, and sometimes we have unintended consequences because we didn't have the time to think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think as a program and, and as a person, I think we all made these kind of mistakes uh, before. And I think in 2020, we were in a, in, a, in the very fortunate position that we're really close to so many people in industry and we have a very open dialogue with assessors and owners in our steering committee uh, as well. And a lot of people reach out to us very, very early in the pandemic. I have emails from some building owners and facility managers from February, basically mm. warning us on what was coming and mm. how you know big this could turn out to be. Um, so uh, we didn't immediately realize how big this was going to be with those emails, but it started a conversation in a team and we had more of those. And by the time we hit you know, early March, we realized that uh, this could be really big, very significant. Uh, it could have very practical implications on the ability for people to access a site to do a rating. What's going to happen with the energy bill? So um, it, because we got that quite early in the pandemic, uh, we, you know, by that point, we realized we needed to resource this well. So we actually literally put some projects on hold for quite a few months so we could create a dedicated team that only worked on COVID-19, basically a dedicated task force um, in the team. Uh, we had a lot of guidance from a steering committee. So by the time we got into, say, the 20th of March, which is just before the lockdown started, we had a team working on a consultation paper already calling assessors. And that is, I think that the first paper for consultation we put out was something like the 25th or 26th of March, mm. uh, which is probably the, the single rating tool in the world that responded to COVID-19 the fastest. Mm-hmm. And that I think is, a, a, you know, I, I do think that we have a great team, but I, I think the key reason for that is our relationship with industry, mm. is that people felt like they could warn us about this uh, and, you know, as early as possible and felt like we will do something about it if they did. Can I jump in there, Carlos? Because I yeah. think there's another there's another thing that drove that because because Neighbours is based on operational performance. Um, the prospect of significant changes in building use patterns would would mean that potentially that you would see those changes very very rapidly. Um, and so compared to some other rating tools which might be more focused on design or, or, or other issues, that it was an issue for neighbours in, in in a very material way, and that you you didn't have a lot of time to sort of stroke your stroke your excellent goatee and, and think through the implications. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Absolutely. I think that is that is definitely definitely part of it. So when we when we get into this process of consulting, one of the we first we solve a lot of very practical issues about, you know, what happens if an assessor cannot access a site, right? Like the the, mm-hmm. the first thing that came to our mind when lockdowns were imposed in, in March. But soon after that we started to work on well, what do we do about our ratings, our rating results? What happens if um, buildings are mostly vacant, say in April and May throughout Australia? Mm-hmm. Um what happened with that energy consumption and what's going, what, what is that going to mean for neighbors rating results? So for a little while, we, we were playing with the idea of creating an adjustment for COVID-19 to account for the fact that buildings were going to be less occupied. Um, and, and the idea behind that was that, you know, we would like a, the rating result to be comparable maybe to the previous year and the next year. And we, and there were people who were really concerned that suddenly everyone were going to get a six-star neighbors energy rating. Um, and and what would that mean for the program? And and so we did quite a bit of work on that, and we did explicit consultation on this for about a month. Um, and we had overwhelming feedback from most people in the market to ask us not to overreact with an adjustment uh, mm-hmm. to COVID nineteen, partly because uh, uh, you know people still needed to manage their assets to the best of their ability, even if there are no people there. That doesn't mean that the building is shut, and it doesn't mean that there's no energy consumption. Uh, secondly, that creating an adjustment factor for that was extremely difficult. And we did learn that after we tried to work on that for a month or two. Yeah. Um, and most people said, you know, just let the ratings uh, go up by a little bit if they have to. Uh, and just monitor the situation. And let's let's just see by by how much energy uh, is going to go come, go up or down. Um, and that, I feel, it was, a, in hindsight, a really great suggestion by, by our stakeholders because uh, by this point in the year, we have quite a bit of data on buildings operating in March, April, May, June, which was nationally, if you discount the second lockdown in Victoria, nationally was the point of the lowest occupancy in the country was around May, maybe April as well. Um, and many of these office buildings were 90%, well, maybe even more, you know, vacant. Um, and then when we look at the energy consumption, that didn't go down by 90% at all. Uh, mm. On average, it went down by 25% in the worst month, which was May. Uh, and then it started to go back closer to the same levels than the year before. So we found that the impact of COVID-19 in energy consumption uh, is it real. Absolutely. Uh, is, it, is, it, is it meaningful and measurable? Yes. Does that mean that all buildings are going to get six stars? Not at all. Not at all. Mm. And mm. and. I think if anything, we've learned that, you know, we've become very good at managing buildings in operations under normal conditions. Yep. But the minute we had to be very flexible on the way we operated them, we realized that we're not so good. That's not something that a lot of teams on site were not ready for that. And the ones that were, the systems sometimes were not were not allowed for efficient operation, you know, at 10% capacity. So that's an area that we've all learned, wow, that's something that we need to get better, especially if we look forward over the next you know, couple of years. I think the operating at partial capacity on some days with more people than others is probably something that is going to be a feature of the office market going forward with a lot of people working from home and the office in a mixed sort of way. So it's, you know, I'm always looking at the silver lining of all of this. And one of them is that we found that that's not something that we're very good in 2020. Uh, and it's an area that we could get a lot better going forward. But so are we seeing an impact on neighbors' rating results? Yes, we have. It's not an enormous impact. I think on, on average, 
you know, any buildings that were certified, say, in October, using about five or six months of COVID data nationally, they've only seen an increase in radius by 0.2 stars. So it's not, it's not nothing, <laughs> but, it's, uh, but it's not much more than the annual improvement that we've seen every year in, in the past. So um, uh, there is a little bit of an impact. I think that decision was, in hindsight, a really great decision, and it's uh, all credit to that. To, to our stakeholders. Um, so anyway, I feel there are many lessons that we learn out of this pandemic. We're still learning them and we're still in the middle of this. Um, we don't have yet results for Melbourne in particular. We're starting to collect enough data to be able to do that. And, and we'd love to release some of that data um, in towards the end of this year. Uh, but if you look at the rest of the states, um, you know, vacancy or occupancy rates in places like Queensland, Western Australia, South Australia, Tasmania, uh, has been going up significantly. The Property Council a couple of weeks ago reported that many of these cities had come back to maybe 60% of normal levels on a daily basis. So um, I think in many of those states, we are seeing a return to normal energy consumption levels and some level of normalcy on, 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 on how to operate buildings. Um, obviously, in some other aspects like waste, for example, the impact's been much more pronounced because waste mm. is directly generated by the people who go into that building. So if there's 10% of people in the building, there's probably going to be about 10% of waste. But in the energy consumption sector, we realize that the the impact hasn't been uh, as big as as we would like to. I would have loved to see buildings reducing 90% of energy use um, if they had 90% vacancy. Obviously, it's not something that we're ready for, but it is something that we can prepare for to become better in, in the coming years. Anything to add, Esther, particularly on what it's been like uh, engaging with stakeholders um, during the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, look, clearly a lot of sectors doing it really tough. I mean, we, we did some really detailed consultation with the hotel sector and halfway through that is when they were really getting hit mm. hard. Mm. Um, and so we are very thoughtful about that. Mm. Um, however, I, I I have also been yeah just really impressed at how much um constancy there has like there, there hasn't been any question about well let's get rid of our neighbors ratings there hasn't been any mm. why are we doing this mm. again there's there's a definite um you know I'm on reduced capacity my team's down I can't get to it as quickly but no one no one's trying to pull out of a process so yep. so I I I take that as a as a great um assurance that people continue to see the work as important uh, that they're continuing to set those long-term targets and we just need to be sensible and flexible and just you know meet people where they are but um but actually the long-term uh, you know the, the long-term planning and thinking that people have put in place actually does give me confidence that we'll bounce out of this um, more quickly um from a kind of reporting and sustainability particularly point of view i mean obviously there'll be other economic impacts that i can't speak to but mm. but i do have a strong amount of confidence that um you know the point that carlos made at the very beginning that this this is this is our reality now mm. and sustainability is here to stay and and so in in some ways um yeah whilst difficult it's it's validating and reassuring at the same time yeah, it goes back to that idea of a stress test and the uh, the mm-hmm. commitment of organisations across the country has been stress tested during this period, um, perhaps like never before. And, and we found that uh, the commitment in this space is is deep and, and abiding. And uh, and having and having a team that's actively looking to the future mm. has got even has got value in an organisation. You know, like 
so it's not just protecting what we have, but it's actually we need people who've got their sights on the future so that we know that organizationally we are better able to respond the next time one of these comes along. So um, I think it will play well for us in the long term. Well said, Esther. And I want to thank both of you for your time. It's always fun catching up. Um, I encourage our listeners to take a look at the annual report. Um, I think it underlines what an incredible platform Neighbours is for driving positive change in the market. And it bodes well for both of your efforts um, over the next few years and for Neighbours over the next decade. And look forward to uh, to checking in down the track as you get some of these big new initiatives, and particularly uh, the, the sector expansion effort um, up and running uh, over the next little while. So thank you, Esther. Thank you so much. And thank you, Carlos. Thanks for having us. That wraps up this episode of First Fuel. If you have comments, you can find us on Twitter. Carlos is at Carlos Flores Len. Esther is at Esther Bailey. And my handle is at Luke Menzel. To keep up to date on the latest and energy efficiency, energy management demand response, you can follow the Energy Efficiency Council at EE Council. But if Twitter is not your thing, you can find all of us on LinkedIn or email the team. The address is firstfuel at ec.org.au. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to First Fuel in your podcast app of choice. And of course, many episodes of First Fuel are broadcast as they're recorded, so you can jump on Zoom and listen in live for a full listing upcoming recording times. Visit ec.org.au forward slash podcasts. But for now, it's goodbye from us and we'll catch you soon. Thank you.